This week on the Vergecast, a packed show. Casey Newton is here to talk about his massive Facebook scoop. We get into all of the Microsoft news, and we go deep on net neutrality. That's Vergecast. Come up now. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. What does the future look like? By melting business acumen and innovative technology, Deloitte can help you build the future only you can imagine. They can help engineer solutions for your business reality today and your vision for tomorrow to get you to a world where you don't just dream it, you build it. See how you can engineer advantage with Deloitte at Deloitte.com slash US slash engineering advantage. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hello and welcome to The Vergecast, the flagship podcast of the Vox Media ecosystem, whose walls grow ever taller, but whose comfort and services grow ever more lush. That's good. I like that. Casey Newton, you're here with us. How are you? I'm good. Hey, Neelai. Dieter Bone? I also am lush. Oh, I'm a lush. There it is. Both. Paul Miller's here. <laughs> Hello. We, it's a big week, and there's a world in which this is like a, I don't know, six to seven hour show, just because of yeah. everything that's happened this week. There was a huge Microsoft event iOS 13, Deep Fusion launched, unlaunched. Uh, there's a net neutrality ruling that we got to talk about. But I think, for my money, the biggest news of the week came from our man Casey Newton, Aww. who acquired, who found. I don't want to like, I don't want to, like, you know, I don't want to like get into your methods. Uh, two hours of audio of Mark Zuckerberg across meetings at Facebook, talking candidly to his employees about what's going on, how things are going. Casey, tell us about that. Yeah, so I obtained uh, some audio of these meetings. They took place in July. They were broadly open to employees, and one of the main purposes for these meetings was to let employees ask questions of Mark Zuckerberg. And so as you listen to the recordings, you you sort of hear two things. One is, yes, you hear Mark Zuckerberg talk about uh, the government's plans to regulate and maybe break up Facebook and how they plan on crushing their competitor TikTok. Um, but you also hear employee anxieties, which to me are the real kind of heartbeat of the piece, right? We think of Facebook as this monolith, this giant world-beating colossus, uh, but inside the company, it feels very fraught, right? They're worried about the government. They're worried about their declining uh, reputation. They're worried about the competition. And so that's kind of what I tried to uh, illustrate as we wrote uh, this piece. That's not necessarily how it was received in the world, which I know is something you've been now talking and writing about. The reception is much more like Facebook goes to war, but you're you're actually focused on these questions are evidence of Facebook being maybe a little bit more tentative than you think. Yeah, and I mean, look, we weren't naive. We knew what the newsiest bit in here was, and it was Mark Zuckerberg saying that he was going to go to the mat to fight the government if they tried to break up his company. And and so that there's a reason why when you go to the piece, that is the first snippet of audio that you hear. Um, you know, that said, it, it started a much uh, bigger news cycle than I think any of us expected. Well, we've got the audio. It's a podcast, after all. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna let's let's listen to it and then let's talk about it for one sec. So here it is. It's Mark Zuckerberg was asked about breakups in general, and he very specifically uh, mentions Elizabeth Warren, which I think is the thing that really keyed off the cycle. Like Elizabeth Warren, who thinks that the right answer is to break up the companies. Um, you know, I mean, if she gets elected president, then I would I would bet that we will have a legal challenge, and I would bet that we will win the legal challenge. So it's so it's um, so basically it's uh, and um, so I. I does that still suck for us? Yeah. I mean, I don't have to, you know, have a major lawsuit against our own government. I mean, that's not like the position that you want to be in when you're, you know, I mean, it's like we, we care about our country and like want to work with our government to do good things. And, um, but, but look, at the end of the day, if someone's going to try to threaten something that existential, you go to the map and you fight. So can I, I, I don't think we've, even you and I have talked about this, Casey. That long pause <laughs> where he, he cues up to say, does that still suck for us? It, there's a part of that to me that is like the most telling thing, right? He doesn't quite know what he's going to say next. And he's like, <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to admit that it sucks, yeah. right? And like that, you've interviewed Zuckerberg. We've seen him interviewed by lots of people. He's not very candid. And that struck me as like the most candid moment that we've we've ever heard from him. Yeah, he uh, he is sort of off the script at that point, or at least he's thinking of like whatever might be on his script. What is the next move? Um, I mean, part of the value of hearing this recording is hearing Zuckerberg trying to work out in real time at least what he's going to tell his employees about it. I mean, you know, maybe he's thinking it through for himself. I imagine he already has you know pretty firmed up beliefs about <laughs> about these issues. Um, but you know, he does have to kind of communicate it to employees, and you know, you can imagine he has employees there who. You know, I don't know, might be broadly supportive of more competition in the ecosystem, you know, let's say. You, and so the Instagram yeah. employees are like, yeah, break us up. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I think that's probably true. You know, one of the really cool things that happens from a reporter's perspective is that the bigger these companies get, the more people they wind up hiring that kind of think the entire company is bullshit, right? And like, and they will tell you that, you know, like maybe they buy into some aspect of the mission, but like they're not all in in the way that they were when it was 300 people. So obviously he mentions Warren, uh, Elizabeth Warren, you know, fired back at, at Zuckerberg. It seemed like both sides got to sort of dine out on this moment. You know, what's really interesting is to me, we've talked a lot specifically about Senator Josh Hawley, who is sort of also an anti-tech crusader. He's a very conservative politician. Zuckerberg just went to Hawley's office. Like he was in DC, he went into a closed door meeting in Hawley's office. Hawley comes out of that meeting and is like, yeah, I asked Mark Zuckerberg if he would break off Instagram and WhatsApp and he said no. And it's like, he's getting it from both sides. But in this moment, it's like, so, there's so much focus on Elizabeth Warren. But I wonder, are you seeing that response that this quote in particular got around Warren is indicative of Mark Zuckerberg has a has sort of like an Elizabeth Warren problem. Mark Zuckerberg has an antitrust problem. Well, I mean, the full quote is he says, you have people like Elizabeth Warren, right? So he is saying right there, you know, it is not just her. He knows it is uh, more people, including Republicans. Um, that anecdote you told, by the way, my absolute favorite thing Josh Hawley has ever done. <laughs> like, say what you will 
about his other policies, but just the idea of him saying, you know what, why don't you just you know break apart the company? Um, it was like literally the same question that I asked um, Boz and Adam Masseri on stage at Code in June, and like now now Holly's like picking up the crusade. So this is like very exciting uh, for me personally. Um, but yeah, no, he has an antitrust problem. Um, th- this issue has united Republicans and Democrats. They have both found that there is great hay to be made. It is red meat for both of their bases to come out and say, big tech is too big, it's too powerful, and it needs to be reined in. There are very few uh, Democrats or Republicans, I think, who disagree with that admittedly nebulous idea. So you just mentioned your interview at Code with Adam Masseri uh, and Boz. It's funny because you know one of their answers to you saying she should break it up, I think Masseri said, you know, there's so many people at Facebook working on election security, it's actually more people than work on Instagram total. Yes. Right? And that, it seems to be, it's a go-to line. I think Masseri said it on the Today Show this week too, right? Like they've got a stat. They love that stat. It, I think it must suck for Instagram because they know that they will never hire more people until like the election <laughs> security team gets bigger. Like they're holding on to this stat. But Zuckerberg gives a very similar answer in these comments to employees. And it's specifically about Twitter. And so I want to run that audio too because this one is super interesting to me. And I think really gets at the uh, core I think, element of the debate, which is, do you need size to protect people? So let's run this audio, and then we can talk about that. That's why Twitter can't do as good of a job as we can. I mean, they face qualitatively the same types of issues, but they're, you know, I mean, they, they, they can't put in the investment. Our, our investment on safety is bigger than the whole revenue of their company. They literally cannot do it. So, I mean, A, amazing dunk on Twitter. Hashtag wrecked. <laughs> right? Like, just an amazing dunk on Twitter. Uh, suggests maybe that Facebook is too big all on its own, right? Like, uh, this cost center for us is bigger than all of your revenue. Is like, yeah, that means you're huge. Uh, but do you buy it that you need this scale to protect the platform? You know, there's um, have you seen that episode of The Simpsons uh, where Prohibition returns to Springfield, and the, the great joke in it is uh, alcohol, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. That is Facebook with size, right? Size is size <laughs> might be the cause of all of their problems, but it will also be the solution. And because it is one of the largest companies the world has ever seen, it will use that size to clean up any messes that, oh, by the way, were caused by its size. So I think it's a, a somewhat circular argument, and we're going to hear it forever. Well, I mean, what gets me is there is the notion that, okay, let's say you do break up Facebook and Instagram, WhatsApp. The first thing Instagram has to do is spend a bunch of money uh, building a, like a, a trust and safety team, building a security team that they were previously sort of getting for free. So that just like increases costs on both sides. Like I, I, that seems very obvious. That's like the first problem an independent Instagram or an independent WhatsApp would have. But it also seems like they could build a bunch of revenue centers that they're prevented from having now that might compete with Facebook. So there's Facebook dating that could be a revenue center for Facebook in the future. It seems very obvious that Instagram should build Instagram dating and it would be a much faster revenue center than, I don't know, whatever the olds are doing at Facebook dating. Um, there's a whole bunch of other stuff, right? Like I think we, we've heard Instagram's video ambitions are sort of thwarted by Zuckerberg not wanting to step too much on Facebook's video ambitions. So they're, like, they're, I, I, I guess I just don't quite understand how you parse out what the costs are of breaking the companies 
and what the opportunity cost of keeping the companies together are. And I, I just feel like no one's really made that argument or made that cohesive. Yeah, also, increasingly, companies are sharing um, information and best practices around this stuff, right? At, you know, industry, councils, uh, you know, there are, uh, they're already working together to remove, like, child exploitation imagery and terrorism imagery, right? They're in the, these sort of industry councils. I think that there's an argument to be made that, like, there could be a really good just trust and safety company that comes along as a third-party provider, right? Like, that could be a, a tech business uh, in its own right. And I think you can also imagine that maybe the cost will come down over time as we perfect some of the best practices for keeping the worst of the stuff off the platforms. So, the I mean, look, you're always going to need real people to do this job. It's like very hard. We've written a lot about it this year. Um, but this idea that only the largest companies will ever be able to have a safe platform, I just, I absolutely reject. It is it is such a convenient argument for them, and we have no data to suggest that it's true. Yeah, we had uh, Alex Stamos, who is the former chief security officer of Facebook, and he actually made very much the same argument that eventually an economy of of safety and security companies needs to exist, yeah. because that's the only way you can enable competitors. But here, it's very clear the argument is our scale is what will solve the problem. And I, I don't know that, that they make that argument a lot, and I feel like the next step of this conversation is rigorously assessing that argument. Like how yes. true is it versus how 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 much opportunity costs are we missing? Yeah, here's a data here's a data point for you. When Facebook was limited to uh, colleges, people didn't use it to interfere with our elections. So by that fact, we could say, hmm, the smaller Facebook is, the safer it is, right? Like to me, that it, like, you might think that's like a ridiculously glib argument, but to me, it is just as internally coherent as, you know, we can only solve our, our big problems if we're big. I'm fairly sure I tried to interfere in the 2008 election. <laughs> on Facebook. Like, and it just rolled out to my school, and I was like, I'm going to get in there. Uh, it didn't work. It's really oh. my problem. <laughs> uh, so, Casey, you, you've now sort of lived with this audio in the world. You've seen a bunch of reactions this week. Um, Facebook, uh, I think you and I have both been talking about, Facebook seems to be just owning it. Like, yep, that's yep. how he talks. <laughs> what do you what what happens next? Like what what are you thinking about now that you you've published a story, you've seen the reaction of Zuckerberg, plus and minus for his candidness and transparency in this audio. What, how do you think this kind of shapes the conversation moving forward? I mean, there's a few different things. Like one is how does this affect the internal culture at Facebook? There's a lot of really really mad people in there right now that this audio leaked, is what I was told today. Um, and I'm, you know, you can probably imagine that that's true. Um, I'm also being told that Facebook is ready to get Zuckerberg out there a little bit more. That he's like kind of been in a bunker for the past year, but they want him to talk to more people, um, like maybe in Europe. So I think that he is going to be making more of this case directly. Uh, but, you know, what else happens? I mean, I, I, I think that uh, to some extent, this stuff is going to be on a treadmill until we know who wins the 2020 election. Uh, if Trump wins re-election, I think the odds of a breakup, you know, basically drop to zero for, you know, at least four years. So um, I think there's going to be a lot of just kind of uh, commentary until then. Yeah, I think Josh Hawley, if Trump wins re-election, becomes the attorney general and just, like, goes for it. <laughs> um, I mean, gosh, what a story that would be to cover. My, I mean, my goodness. It's out there. I personally found this audio very refreshing. Uh, did you guys listen to some of that, the, the Zuck pod 
Remember when Mark Zuckerberg did a podcast? You, you're talking about like his his serious conversations he's been having this yeah, year. Yeah, is that still going? I don't yeah. know. He's done, I think, four or five of them, but not one in several months. It was so frustrating to listen to because he clearly had a product in mind. He had a, a specific end goal, a future that thing that he wanted to launch and he just wanted these people's permission that is what it felt like listening to here and so it felt like he had no um uh he was not taking in any any information or anybody's feelings where here in this thing it, it seemed clear that he knew exactly how his employees are feeling and probably the, the you know like i'm sure in the bay area you say oh i work for facebook and someone's like oh i'm so sorry for you or something like that you know like mm-hmm. he seemed like he really got that in a way that the podcast made him seem completely out of touch yeah it's it's actually a conversation between him and his employees whereas when he's being interviewed like you know by somebody like us it's always uh, like him as ambassador of the company you know presenting the external view um so you know that's like one more reason why i thought this audio was really uh revealing um you know which i feel compelled to say because there were some people out there being like there's nothing interesting about this you know we could have we could have just guessed all of this I was like, well, why didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny, Casey. We were, I, I was just joking about the attorney general thing. But just now, William Barr and, like, this, the country of Australia and some others are demanding that Zuckerberg halt his plans to encrypt messaging across the three services. Yeah, which it's a little weird, right? Because, like, WhatsApp is already encrypted and iMessage exists. So, like, what exactly is the, is, is the issue here? Is that you... You want to maintain law enforcement access to to Messenger and Instagram Direct? I just I I need to like read more about what's being said. Yeah, I mean this literally happened minutes before we we started here. But I mean the they announced it. And everyone's immediate response was, "You're trying to tie your services together so they're harder to break up." And so you at least have some action. It's like don't do that. Like stop that process until we we take a look at it. And I think the idea that he needs to go and be more conversational in Europe is like. Where is all the antitrust action happening right now? It's like in Europe. And so like he's going to go make friends over there by being a little bit more honest. Like it's probably not a bad strategy, but you just see that pressure. Like is this thing too big as you said is oh, it's a winning argument on the right and the left. No one's particularly happy uh, with Facebook and it's very and I thought it was very revealing. I think that the the joke everyone has been making is this is the best interview he's ever done mm-hmm. right right by far this is the best Mark Zuckerberg interview of all time because he's just being honest and if that's the lesson he takes from this I think it's actually a good thing yeah I mean something I'll say about the audio is like he's funny in it right like he tells jokes and somebody had told me earlier this year who knows him that he's like really funny in person and honestly like I didn't quite know if I believed it because I've spent you know the past seven years watching him pretty closely and like he doesn't do a lot of zingers you know and yet you kind of just hear him in the, you know there's this great joke in there where somebody's like hey are we gonna do invasive uh, brain surgery for ad targeting purposes <laughs> basically and he's just like oh you know great I'd love to see the congressional hearings on that that one, uh, which is like, that's like a funny thing. Like, I would laugh, you know, if, if I was in the room with him. Um, so I would love to see a little bit more of that. You know, they're so interested in like humanizing him and making him the face of the company. It's like, well, show us the version of him that like laughs and, and, and smiles and like jokes around. Yeah. But at the same time, he like does a Facebook live in his backyard answering questions about grilling and like he gets dunked on for six years straight. Right? Like there's a balance there that I think is really, really hard for him. Uh, yes. Like he can't be glib. Like, people think Facebook is too evil for him to be, like, glib, right? Right. So that's a calibration that he's going to have to make. Yes, that's very true. I will say that I picked up some good meat-smoking tips from that (laughs) Facebook. I did not. 
Let's be honest. I already knew everything. All right, Casey. Thank you so much for joining us. You're going to have more scoops. Tell me about the interface. You know, the, the, the scoop sort of came about uh, indirectly because I write a daily newsletter about platforms and democracy. It's called The Interface. It comes out Monday through Thursday. I do it with uh, Zoe Schiffer, uh, and you can find it at theverge.com slash interface. All right. Thank you so much, Casey. We're going to take an ad. We're going to back and talk about some Microsoft stuff. Here we go. Support for The Vergecast comes from Shopify. Whether you're a huge company or a small crafter trying to make a buck off your hobby, selling online is one of the best ways to grow. Shopify is one of the top e-commerce platforms that you can use to get started. But it's not just online. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. And you can sell wherever, online or with their in-person point of sale system. You can also sell more with less effort with their AI-powered tool, Shopify Magic. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. You might recognize more brands who already use Shopify, like Rothy's, Brooklinen, Allbirds, and more. Millions of entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries rely on Shopify for their e-commerce needs. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash vergecast. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash vergecast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash vergecast. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between so you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected, and 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. We're back. Hard shift mm-hmm. on a Facebook policy zone into what we're really here for. Folding two-in-one dis- <laughs> displays. <laughs> that is what we're really here for. Are you kidding me? Uh, so Microsoft had a huge event. Huge. I mean, is there any bigger news in like operating system world than Microsoft using Android? I'd say the biggest event since Elijah Wood announced the Xbox. Wow. Ooh. That's bigger than the time they danced on stage for Windows 95. The amount of history that is packed into a surprise phone announcement from Microsoft, uh, them making their own phone running Android. Like, Mm -hmm. I I can't even begin to tell you how many, like, flashbacks I'm having to – different versions of Windows Mobile and then Windows Phone and Steve Ballmer and Stephen Elop and Burning Stephen Platforms. Stephen Elop! Burning Platforms. How do you think Stephen Elop feels today? <laughs> I think um, he feels pretty bad. <laughs> how do you think the employees of Nokia feel today? Um, it's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. So Panos Panay, who is Microsoft's chief product officer, if you're 
listening to this, you're probably listening to it out of the feed. You can see right before it, we inter- Tom Warren and I interviewed Panos for a little bit more than half an hour yesterday. I love talking to Panos. He is, you know, we were just talking about Zuckerberg and Facebook. Panos is just himself. Can I, because uh, I'm not as in, in the trenches with you guys uh, day in and day out. There was a subtext to that conversation where Panos wanted to kill Tom, but be good friends with you. So can you please explain that to me? Yeah, I think I can. Tom is a really good reporter and often scoops Panos's announcements. Yeah. And that was not as subtle as you think it might have come across. It was very obvious in the room because he kept pointing at Tom being like, whatever it is that you do. Uh but no, they like they all they obviously like each other as well. Okay, it was good. just that was That's he good. kept on doing that. It was really it was very funny to me. Um, but we talked to Panos for a, a while yesterday. I hope you go listen to it. Like I said, I love talking to Panos. He's just he's a, he's direct. He doesn't mm. shade it. He just tells you what he's thinking. And I've um, if you've been listening to the interview episodes, I've been interviewing a lot of politicians, and they're not like that. Mm. So this was like a refreshing uh, uh, just sort of conversation. And so, you know, we asked, like, why Android? And he was straight ahead. He's like, that's where the apps are. We need the apps. You want the apps. People want Android. Mobile applications aren't going away. This is what we're doing. I have many things to say about that, by the way. Like, go finish your spiel. But we have to come back to that answer because it is not as easy as he thinks. Okay. So let me just run through the list of things. And then we we can come back specifically to Service Duo and Android because that's the meat of it. So they announced new Surface laptops, 13 and 15. They seem very good. They've got um, a custom AMD processor in the 15. Yep. That's one of their first custom processors. Intel processor in the other one. Uh, they announced Surface Pro 7, which has a USB-C port. And giant bezels. And giant bezels. And, and Panos was like, I knew if I didn't do it, you would complain on the Vergecast. So love that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's true. They announced the Surface Pro X, Woo. which has a custom processor arm. Yeah. They made it with uh, Qualcomm. It's uh, the Surface SQ1 processor. It's a bad name uh, for a processor. It's not the most. It's you know, it's not like the A15 Bionic cheater or like whatever Apple's doing. Yeah, it's the SQ1. The uh, Pana said they're running it uh, basically at high wattages. They're, they're, he's like, this is a PC architecture part, but ARM. So that's really interesting. That is a big question mark situation, right? Windows on ARM has existed. It's been out there. This is a new Surface device running ARM. There's an emulation layer for your sort of like classic Intel x86 apps. We're gonna have to see how it goes. Just to be clear, the 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 dual screen Neo runs Windows 10X, but the Surface X runs Windows 10. The Surface Pro X runs Windows 10 on ARM, right. and the Neo, which we'll and get to in a second, is uh, Intel one, 10X. Right. Yep. Okay. Got it. And then there's Surface Buds which I just have never seen a company double down harder on the purpose of our cool headphones is PowerPoint that Microsoft is doubling down on PowerPoint being the killer app for headphones, but that's what they're saying. I think they look cool. People, I've seen a lot of memes about these being pop sockets for your ears. Or Frankenstein's monster bolts, but in your ears. It is true that they are giant circles, but I prefer that to everything else. The best part about this is Will I Am is sad because he made giant circle headphones a couple years ago. Gadget was like, it was like falling apart at the seams or like light on. I mean, like, sorry, Will, I am. I'm, fi- I'm sorry that your idea for circles got ripped off. Every literally every Will, I am product we've ever dealt with has been has been horrible. Um, but, you know, circles, who doesn't want to own the circle? All that stuff is shipping now. Mm-hmm. That's the the current 2019 holiday lineup, right? Service laptops, 
Surface Pro 7, uh, Surface Pro X, Windows on ARM, lighter, thinner, always on LTE, the whole, the whole thing. So the most futuristic device in that lineup is the Pro X, Windows on ARM. Then they announced the stuff that's coming next year, which is basically their foldable strategy. That is the Surface Neo, which, Paul, runs Intel, folding screen, new version of Windows called Windows 10X that right now is designed for folding screens. Dieter, I suspect that, like me, you could also talk about whether Windows 10X for one folding screen device is a good idea. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a new version of Windows that developers should use to make foldy screen stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Then, big surprise, Surface Duo, a phone. It's a phone. Mm -hmm. you, can, you can fold it all the way around so the screens are on the outside and just use it like a phone. Running Android, two displays. Right now, there's a, a Snapdragon 855 in there. We all suspect that by the time this thing launches holiday 2020, they'll, they'll go to the next generation of, of Snapdragons. But right now, it's an 855. We have seen companies screw that up. Or they like they announce it way ahead of time with a relatively older processor. We're like, oh, they, they'll fix that by the time it launches, and then they don't. So I'm not 100% confident that this won't be running a Snap 8, 855 in holiday 2020, more than a year from now. It's a, it's a back and forth because uh, Panos told us on the show yesterday, the hardware is locked. This is a third generation. It's locked. We're announcing it early. Developers will have it in a couple months because we want them to build apps for the dual screen stuff. And then sort of like whispers around the edges of the event were... When it launched. So, like, we'll see. That's right. a real question. Mark. Yeah, yeah. But we, Panos said on the show, on the record yesterday, hardware's locked. This is what's going on. As in, like, the form factor, the design, and everything. Yeah. I said, will the hardware change by next year? And he said, no, this is it. Will the chip inside change? I think up in the air. It's beautiful. I saw, I held one yesterday. Um, I actually held Panos's. If you listen to the show, he, like, hands it to me, and mm -hmm. I... You can hear me almost like run away. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, um, so I held it. I like, scrolled through Android on it, opened the notification shade. Like I used the thing. It is, I love it. I love it. And I know it's not, it's got a big seam in the middle. Uh, Panos is like, we're leaning into the seam. Mm -hmm. The interface does cool things with the seam. So like Windows snap to it. It's like, that's that part of it's neat, right? He's like, the seam helps us structure windows on the interface, it, structure displays. If you have a window that spans across it, the win even the content inside of the window, he showed me a calendar app. So even like calendar events and you like drag to create a calendar event, snap to the window. Like it's neat. I'm trying to think as someone who has done some some bad CSS in my time, what sort of CSS would, would accommodate that well? I, I guess there's not there are are there invisible pixels under the seam? Or is it really just two separate displays? No, it's it's just two different displays and a hinge. Android 10 specifically uh, is designed for multi-screen devices. And when they announced it, I don't know, whenever they announced it back in March and it's Q, and then I got an early look at it. And every time I went to talk to Google about Android 10, they were like, and it works better with multi-screen devices. And I was like, cool, you know the Galaxy Fold is a dumpster fire, right? And they're like... Yeah, but it works with multi-screen devices. Work really hard, and I'm like, but why? Hey, there's that LG. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. But Google has worked not just with Samsung, but with Microsoft to build support for multi-screen into the logic of Android itself. And you can actually see a hint of that right now on the Fold, uh, where you can have a thing on the outside screen, open it up, and the whole app appears on the inside screen, just resized. Um, you can also see hints of this in the, all the work they did to make Android apps work better on Chrome, where you can resize them and they can have arbitrary window sizes without having to reload. Um, 
all of that stuff uh, works like folds right into folds right into the Surface Duo because you can apps are now aware that different screens exist and they should do different things depending on what screen they're on and what screen they're being sent to. And so it makes perfect sense that it Microsoft has figured out how to have a calendar app. You hit a thing on one screen and then something within the same app happens on the other screen or another app knows to open on the other screen because they basically told Google, we want to make this. And Google said, cool, let's let's try and minimize fragmentation here. Use these tools to do it. And so it's a mix of like custom Microsoft stuff, but also stuff that's built into Android that other people might be able to take advantage of. Now that Axon, that, that ZTE thing you're talking about, uh, was a dual screen phone. It folded like the other way, um, and you know it was like it didn't. It wasn't aware of the 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 gap. It wasn't aware of the hinge, and so everything was just like split across it in like kind of bad ways. Uh, and I think the hope is that the duo will avoid a lot of those problems. So it, this is maybe a little weedy, <laughs> but okay. I've got my email on one side and my mm-hmm. calendar on the other side, right? Yep. Classic two app scenario. Yep. Now. I want to send an email on the left side and I click new email. Let's say it opens on the left side, right? But my calendar is still open on the right side. But now I turn it and I've got this big wide keyboard, which looks pretty like a nice situation, right? Is that all going to work automatically? Is it going to know which app that I want to be on the top and which one I want to become a keyboard? DBD. Does it remember that kind of stuff? Unclear. There are a million things they could get wrong here. Uh, and Apple, by the way, got a bunch of these things wrong on iPad OS. So we'll be, I'll be interested to see if uh, Microsoft doesn't. Yeah. I mean, given how much Panos likes to talk about flow and putting people in their productivity flow and like <laughs> flow just conceptually, I hope. Uh, that they're thinking this stuff through. I mean, one of the justifications he gave us for why dual screen is important was like, we hooked people up to brain activity sensors and measured how much more brain activity is when there's two screens, which just is cool. Like, I don't want to take away from the fact that that's cool. It is very Microsoft, right? Like, why does Microsoft know this is good? Because they generated a bunch of data that says it is. Uh, and then at the, the, the very end of it, it's like, this is like crazy sci-fi, right? Like, how many screens should you have? As many as the brain scans tell us you should have. And I wonder if, like, more is better. Like, you're going to get a four-screen device. You have four times the brain activity. And that brain thing is very, I mean, I like, I have different modes of productivity. I have, like, my sitting with one big window open, concentrating on one thing. And then I have, like, my dual window set up. And, like, you know, like... Uh, Dieter, you were saying, I think, this last week about the iPad operating system, their sort of mix of spatial and time kind of hurts you. So, like, if if having multiple screens or multiple panes or multiple sections is inconsistent, that is more work for your brain. Yeah, and I, I love the thing about we're using the two displays and we're going to structure it, right? That, that implies there's, like, there's spatial metaphors here, not chronology metaphors. But having held the thing for you know the brief moments we got to hold it and swipe through it, one, it's real, it works, it doesn't, it's not fake, it's not just like a lit up piece of paper, yep. which is like companies do that to us. The version of Android on it, it appears to be lightly designed, so like the icons are square, the notification shade looks a bit different. They're, they say they're working with Google closely. They would not answer our questions about. Um, you know, I was like, is Google letting you do stuff? And Panos was like, it's not a letting conversation, it's a partnering conversation, which is definitely some corporate executive talk. 
it, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Right? He said, like he, I looked at, he showed me on the screen, Google search is the default on this side, but a bunch of Microsoft stuff is on the home screen of the interface on this side. Yep. Bing search is there, but Google apps get to be the default in some cases. You know what the default browser is? Edge. Yep. Right? Like, that's a big deal. Like, that's <laughs> Although Edge runs on Chromium, so. We got to talk about that, too. Um, <laughs> but you, you, you might notice that uh, Google in the EU was just uh, recently penalized and forced to unbundle Chrome in search from Android, right? Like, because they were so rigorous about it being the default. So that there's clearly two huge companies negotiating a lot to make this device happen. You wonder how much Google is getting in return for giving up you know, some default placements. I think one big thing, and Dieter, this was in your piece, like Google just gets to win. Yeah. <laughs> <They> just, <laughs> right? Like they just get to win. Uh, they get to say that, you know, there's there's iOS and there's Android, and those are the two mobile operating systems that exist. And even Microsoft had to, had to face that reality. But I, I suspect Google will get some other concessions from Microsoft along the line. I also think, and this is, Dieter, where I, I'm just very curious for your thoughts here, the notion that Microsoft is divorcing itself from operating systems and divorcing itself from being proprietary about what it ships yeah. is it's reached it's reached an absolute apex, right? So you just mentioned Edge. They shifted the browser engine from Edge to Chromium, which is Google's engine. Their mobile operating system, they they we talked about all the history here. Microsoft launched Windows Phone. They bought Nokia to have a heart a first party, first class hardware vendor for Windows Phone. They paid developers a lot of money to make apps to get Windows Phone the necessary table stakes sort of functionality that they needed to get it off the ground. All of that failed. Nokia is a shell of itself that is literally owned by another company now. Uh, Microsoft hasn't had a mobile phone strategy apart from preloading apps and Samsung phones for quite some time. And now they are back in the market with a new form factor, which is sort of historically when markets shift, when like market share can shift in, in radical ways. Um, and they're doing it on Android's operating uh, on Google's operating system. That is, that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> like, and that's a lot of Google uh, code sort of powering Microsoft products. And it it just seems historic to me. I mean the the thing about Microsoft no longer. Tom has a really good story up today about like Microsoft doesn't care about Windows anymore, which is like overstating it, but only a tiny bit. Uh, if you care about like the quality of an operating system. Uh, it's hard to know how to feel right now because all the action is on iOS and Android. They're, but they are having like their their iterative year-over-year updates are getting smaller. Um, and I think that if you look at the iterative year-over-year updates for Windows 10 or the Mac, like they're they're smaller still. When was the last time you got like genuinely hyped about a Mac update? I get more hyped about not updating my Mac. Yeah, right. <laughs> like I'm not hyped about upgrading Catalina. Yeah. Like I, I feel like based on my experience with iOS 13, I'm just gonna wait. I'm just gonna wait that one out. Yeah. And the last Windows 10 update was super buggy too. Yep. Yeah. yeah. No, like from May, they're still like holding it on certain devices, uh, which is wild. Uh, so the idea that the action has moved away from the operating system to something else, and that the power no longer resides in the OS. I think is going to accelerate. So Nadella is basically like, you know, the 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 leverage that Microsoft gets out of Windows being dominant is like getting smaller over time. And so it doesn't matter that they're running Android on their mobile operating system because they avoid the problem of not having the apps and the amount of leverage that they would have gotten by owning the OS on that particular device um, 
I don't know how much they actually think they're going to get. The only company that like has genuine leverage from owning the OS right now is basically Apple, right? You could maybe argue Google and the web with Chrome OS, but I think that Microsoft's just like, look, all of our all the power comes in services and in apps and in subscriptions to apps. And so we're just going to do whatever it takes to make sure that you sign up for OneDrive and Office 365 or whatever they're calling it now. And that's it. It's funny because you would think that Google has a ton of power because of Android, but it is true that in Europe, a big market, Android was forced to be unbundled. Yeah. Right? So like some of Google's leverage has actually gone away. Well, and Google's always been too afraid to use that leverage in the first place. CF, the uh, messaging situation. Like they, <laughs> yeah, they, 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 they've just been they're, – they're afraid to use the leverage that they have because they don't want to get slapped with more antitrust, and so they just don't. See, this is a huge tangent, but this thing happens. I, I didn't send it to you yet, Deuter. I needed to. But um, Samsung tweeted today, like, a meme that's, like, two little stick figures. And one's, like, I love new features on my phone. And the other one's, like, I hate it when my, my text message bubbles are the wrong color. Uh-huh. And then under that tweet is just people arguing about RCS. Oh, my God. And I was, like, this is our fault. <laughs> like, I've just never seen... I'm like, this is literally our fault. Like, we are the only people that created this problem. I think that there there are certain things that should have, like, a like in the credits for the app, it should just credit the Vergecast. <laughs> anytime a device gets USB-C, thank, you're welcome. <laughs> anytime there's anything about RCS, you're welcome. It's like, this, I, know, I know this is our fault. So, you know, your point about Apple is really interesting, too, because they are actually leveraging their OS, mm-hmm. right? They're like, we're building services into this OS. Yep. I got a pop-up notification out of nowhere last night at midnight. It's like, have you tried Apple Maps? It's beautiful now. It's like, why does my OS have ads? In it? Like, I don't want this. But, like, Microsoft isn't making that move with Windows. They tried a little bit. Like, have you, have you tried our browser? And, like, it didn't work. You could argue, in a sense, they are leveraging their OS in the sense that they have – they made – Android into a dual screen operating system and it has Edge as a browser. You could probably run Skype on that thing if you're it's crazy. <laughs> you know, right, like, but those are its applications. Like Microsoft taking Google's OS, getting the Play Store, and then like turning it into the Microsoft OS is a, like a remarkable move for Android as an operating system. Right. But it's just I'm just saying there there is this aspect of the layers. Like, you know, we've been talking about this for, for a long time. Google's been trying to move away from the most important part of its operating system being the thing thing with the numerical re- release, right? So Microsoft is running its own launcher, its own browser. You know, obviously it's open source and it's also partnership and obviously it's still mostly Google stuff. But there is this aspect where Microsoft has made this a little bit their own operating system. Yeah. For the things that are most surface level to the users. Surface, womp womp. The question <laughs> the question is, will they will like will people treat it as like a crappy skin or will it feel like an integrated whole? Um, I think Samsung has done a pretty good job with one UI of moving away from like this just feels like a, a, a slap of purple paint on top of the OS to like something that actually feels like it has its own coherency and identity. It's still very Samsung-y. There's a, still a bunch of like extra random stuff there and big speed. But I mean, Microsoft needs to figure that out for the Surface. Um, moving away from operating system philosophy and whether or not it matters anymore. All, <laughs> what show is this? Well, no, <laughs> hang on. I'm getting there. Even if all, if all an OS is like a delivery vehicle for a browser and like, and like uh, either iOS or Android apps and like, that's it. Fine. Um, if we think that the Surface Duo is going to succeed or fail based on the quality of the applications and whether or not they are redesigned, rewritten, and thought through for a dual screen system, I would just like you to pause 
in your car, pull over, pull over, and just close your eyes and think <laughs> about the history of Google trying to get Android developers to make good tablet apps. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a phone that turns into a tablet, right? Yeah. And then it's like, and I do think it's beautiful and like, that's fine. But like, yep, it's a phone that turns into a tablet and uh, Android, it's an Android tablet. Yeah. Like if I said to you, Microsoft made an Android tablet, you would not immediately <laughs> think, oh, what a, what a surefire success. I think that's, I think that's why it's out. It's announced a year early. Yeah. I, I fundamentally believe the thing that's going to happen is in a couple months, developers will get it and Microsoft will do everything in their power to say, hey, you have some huge audience uh, that uses Windows apps, yeah. or you, Android developer, can now target a market of people that will spend a lot of money on a phone and will probably buy your apps so they work hey, better. Hey, <laughs> hey Neil, <laughs> yeah. you, you, you remember when, when Microsoft tried to get everybody to make Windows phone apps? Yeah, you yeah, sound like a loomer. Hey, Neil, hey, Neil, hey, Neil, hey, Neil, do you remember when Microsoft tried to get everybody to make Metro apps? I mean, Windows Store apps? I mean, universal Windows uh, <laughs> platform apps? Do you, you remember, remember how well that went? Uh, you whip. Uh, that's what I called UWP. Uh, that's different. Oh. I promise you it's different. <laughs> okay. Because they're because look, you, please make me a Windows Phone app was like start from scratch. Yeah, but please make a universal app that'll work across all Windows devices and will be good on battery life and will look modern and fresh. They like failed at that. We have two two giant companies that have demonstrably completely just shit the bed on getting developers to do what they wanted them to do to move their platforms forward. Android tablets mm -hmm. and like modern Windows apps, non-Win32 apps. And that is what is going to determine the confluence of those two things is going to be what determines the success of the Surface Duo. I'm just saying. <laughs> you know, we don't often have like the moment on the Vergecast that can turn into like the audiogram tweet. <laughs> that's it. Um, usually it's just like a bunch of rambling mess. It's, so that's great. Seemed, Thank you, Dieter. Like Penne was saying, embrace that gap between the screens. This is two phones side by side. You're running two phone apps side by side. And anything that's weirder than two phone apps side by side sounds like it will be broken unless Microsoft does a lot of work. Okay, but like, let me put this, like, if they do the thing that they suggest they would do, which is we're going to bring xCloud to this device, yeah. and you can stream games to it, yep. and they'll run on it, and it'll basically turn into, like, the world's coolest Nintendo DS. Yeah. And you got the Xbox game at the top, and you got, like, all right, like, I want it. Give it, I ju I'll just buy it right now. Yep, same. Right? Like, that's awesome. Like, there's a chicken and egg problem here where there was never a great Android tablet, and there was, and the reason there never was a great Android tablet is because nobody bought them. And the reason that nobody bought them is because the apps weren't there. And like that cycle was bad. If Microsoft can give you one or two killer apps for this thing, great gaming experience, uh, powered by XCloud, so they don't have to like worry about Android games. It's just like their XCloud service. Um, I don't know, Excel people like people like Excel, right? Like a big, like a huge dual screen Excel. I mean, they got PowerPoint earbuds now. Like, there's a whole thing. The answer to the following question will determine the success or failure of this thing. No, oh, but you already did that. I'm doing it again. Okay. Would you buy this instead of or in addition to your current phone? So I asked Panos this directly. Yep. Is this a substitute for a phone? And he said, for some people, it will be. Yeah. That's where he, that's right. He's like, this is the next step. So some people buy it as a replacement. He's like, I'm using it as a replacement right now. This is my device. Other people are going to buy it as the other thing. Here, very explicitly, as I was like holding it using yesterday, I was like, oh, I know why I want this. I know why I want this form factor because I am extremely intrigued by the idea of closing my phone and having the screen go away and setting it aside. 
right? Like I'm the person who in every meeting turns my phone upside down and like doesn't look at it because I'm trying not to. And it's connected to my watch. So that's a, it <laughs> doesn't work. But I love the idea of like stopping. Yeah. Right? Like uh, such a problem everybody has with their phones. Like they're just always there. You can see the notification, you can see it light up. That screen's in front of you. It's available. I love the idea that this is, will make me a little bit more mindful of like I'm using my phone now. Is it actually going to work? It, it works. Maybe. It works with the Galaxy Fold. I'm using it right now. I'm like working on the review. Um, I'm spending more time with it than I usually do on a phone review because I want to like think through some things. Also, I want to just see if it breaks. See if it breaks. Um, <laughs> but uh, you, when you have the Galaxy Fold as your phone, uh, you use it less because when you use it, you have to use it. And when you're not using it, you're like, oh, this tiny screen sucks, right? Yeah. yeah. So then, what if you had no screen? Okay. Yeah. So that's the duo. Many, many unanswered questions. We're going to do a lot of reporting. By the way, uh, Dieter, you mentioned that Nadella quote um, in like the moving way. That quote, we should just point out, came from our friend Lauren Good at Wired. She interviewed Nadella. He said, Windows is not the point anymore. It's all about apps and services across operating systems. He's been saying stuff like that for a, a while now, like maybe three or four years, but that's as explicitly as he's ever been like, Whatever Windows. Yeah. So also he mentioned I think the, we're gonna see a lot of that shake out. He also mentioned the Microsoft graph, which is like just a, a whole other tangent we could go down that I don't think we should, <laughs> but it's like it's a little terrifying. Yeah, that's like again, it's people on LinkedIn using PowerPoint with their surface buds, and it's just like a <laughs> it's like a whole other culture that you just you know, if you ever wander into like a subreddit that you haven't visited ever before, and you're like, oh, this is a whole different place. Yeah. It's that. Yeah. But it's LinkedIn PowerPoint service buds. Yeah. Uh I can't wait for that subreddit to exist. If that's if there's like a power user Microsoft Office subreddit, please let me know because I cannot wait to see what they think of this. So we should talk about the Neo because that's the other one. Yeah. And it, I think, has even bigger challenges than the Duo. Really? I completely Absolutely. disagree. Why do you think it has bigger challenges? Because at least if you're a developer right now, you kind of know where you need your apps to go, right? You need to be an iOS if you want to pay Apple's taxes and eventually be Sherlocked out of existence, iOS is where you go. You need to be an Android. Maybe Microsoft will convince you to tweak your code to make it better on, on the dual screen phone or you, you fall in love with the Galaxy Fold. Like, you're going to do that work. Windows apps just are not, they're not great, right? Like, you pointed this out. Like, modern Windows apps have not made a splash. They've not, like, taken over the world. Like, we're, we still live in sort of the old paradigm of Windows apps. The Neo runs Windows 10X. It can run Windows apps, but to get the mileage out of the two displays, you gotta, like, the app developers need to support it. And I don't know what will drive them to support it. I do think maybe, like, just having two displays and, like, I love that look where you, like, set it up in portrait and you fold the screen out and the keyboard's in front of you and you have, like, two portrait displays. Like, yeah. that's cool. Yeah. That's just a cool form factor, a cool move. I love the idea that, you know, like, the, the keyboard magnets onto the bottom screen. All that stuff is really neat. Wait, can you explain how do you do two portrait? So the Neo is two screens in a book. So you open it up, it's got the screens on the other side. You can like flip it all the way around. The keyboard is magnetic. So you can like clip it onto the bottom display. You can do keyboard in the front, Paul. Uh, and then the top of the display is called the Wonder Bar. I'm aware of keyboard on the front, and I've been thinking a lot about it because there's no, it's not explicitly mentioned, but it was implied in the keyboard in the front bylaws that you also have a touchpad, which now <laughs> is apparently in the front if the yeah. if the keyboard is on top. But I was thinking, yeah, I, I would love to use this as two side by side vertical screens with the keyboard off the front. Yep. So you just pull the keyboard off, you flip the thing 90 degrees, you set it up, 
two portrait displays, keyboard on the ground. Unclear where the touchpad is in that scenario. All these different things are called postures, which I love. Um, here's a question. Uh-huh. What's the lapability of the uh, Surface Neo? It's a laptop. You just like do it on your lap and you got the it keyboard. It seems highly lappable, especially with the keyboard on it. Just lapability off the charts. By the way, Surface Surface Neo colon massively lappable is definitely the advertising campaign. There's a very clear reason why we are not in that business. Can, can I ask the most obvious question? Should this be running Android? So we asked Panas that question. Um, he's like, no, Android is good up to this size. Everything above that is Windows. Now, is that the politic question? Like answer? Like, I'm sorry. Is that the politic answer? Like, mm. that's what he's got to say. We pushed him. He said, I can see my roadmap. And he was, like, very funny. He's like, it's not like I'm having visions. Like, I, I've seen the roadmap. <laughs> like, it's my right. roadmap. Right. Um, and he's like, we don't, have any, we don't have anything in that zone. Now, is that true? Like, uh, right? Like, I don't know. But the only products I can see this competing with, and I love it. It's so exciting. And you know, we haven't talked too much about it. But, like, obviously, long history of courier leaks and yeah it's it's, you know it's it's a real culmination of a device but i try and i want to love it but especially i'm glad that they embraced the the idea of having a hardware keyboard combined with a two-screen device because it's very important uh, typing is 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 a passion of mine (laughs) so i see i see this as a surface go possible replacement or an an ipad iPad with keyboard replacement. I mean, look, Paul, like 1.3 millimeters of key travel. I mean, they, they said that how many times? They're not going to screw up the keyboard like Apple did. They just won't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when he was telling us that the uh, the laptops are, are repairable now, he had like, I mean, this is, you have to, you should go back and listen to it just, just to catch the inflection in his voice. He's like, the laptops are repairable now. You know, that's great for enterprise customers. And yeah, if you want to change like your keyboard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I want to go back to, Neil, you saying that you think this thing is a, like a, a tougher road to hoe. It's, it's going to be harder to be successful. I think the reason that that struck me as something I disagree with is I think the, the metric for success, the level that it has to hit in order to be a successful product is much lower, and they can have a much longer burn on this device. It took the iPad a while to become – I mean, it had that huge rocket shit takeoff, and then it sort of like chilled out for a minute. Um, I think that – this thing, it doesn't have to live or die just on its own merits. It like is going to piggyback off of what's going on in standard Windows 10 and eventually vice versa. And so I think that they can have this thing be a niche device for people that want to live the courier dream and then have a keyboard in the front uh, every now and then for at least a couple of years before like people really start asking, no, is this actually the future of Windows? Is what this what all computers are supposed to look like? I think they get to they get to position it as the cool, weird thing that we make that some people deeply love and eventually it'll get there is my sense. I think that, look, I hate to overly compare this situation to Apple, but Apple has, I don't know, 15 OSs, right? (laughs) (laughs) Some some absurd number of operating systems for all of its products. But, like, it has the Mac, it has the iPad, it has iOS for the phone. The iPad is, like, the thing we've been asking for. Like, split this off, make it its own thing, right? Like, they finally did it. And then there's this constant question of that's just more phone. What's the split between the laptop and the tablet? But it's all, like, Apple's OS. And people, like, we talk about it. We talk about it on the show. Presumably our audience likes listening to it. But, like, out in the world, no one cares, right? It's just a bunch of Apple stuff. 
I think if Microsoft owned Android and they're like, this is our mobile operating system and this is our desktop operating system and there's a fuzzy boundary in between, maybe we wouldn't be having this conversation, right? Like, it's exactly the same as Apple. But here you have, we have our operating system, Microsoft, Windows, the thing that you think of when you think of us. And then over here on the product that is like the most important, the phone, we had to go somewhere else. And our CEO is saying Windows is not important. And so that has already created this rift of like, is Windows going away? Now, their answer is like, obviously, no. It's their first party platform. If you do ship OneDrive and Office and all these other things that you make, you want to have that in your back pocket. It is also enormous, still enormously lucrative. It supports a range of applications that no one else can even come close to. I don't know, like gaming PCs. What else are you going to do? Like, it's Windows, right? <laughs> so um, I don't think it's going away. I just think it's, as the Duo in particular comes out, the questions Microsoft faces around what is the future of Windows are going to get louder and louder and louder. Windows 10X and the Neo don't answer those questions. I think they actually created a new class of questions. And the Surface Pro 10 or X, sorry, also confuses it for me because the, the Neo is Intel. And then the Surface Pro 10 is this like Microsoft's saying, hey, if, if we use Intel, it has to be real thick and look like garbage. But if we use ARM, it can be real thin and awesome. Yeah. By the way, it's Pro X. Yeah. It's, you said Pro 10. It's Surface Pro no, I'm X. Sorry. Yeah. Very confusing. Yeah. But then they put Intel in the Neo. Yeah. And I, I couldn't tell you why. Intel has been working on this dual screen thing for a long time. I went to their headquarters and like looked at a bunch of prototypes of it last year, earlier this year, some time ago. So this has been like an Intel dream and an Intel passion project for a while. And I think that uh, Microsoft is probably happy to have uh, Windows 10X solve one problem at a time. It'll solve the make people make apps that understand two screens on Windows problem. And then it will solve the... Um, ARM Windows apps problem later. You know what I mean? Yeah. Let me, let's just end this a little bit out. Do you think dual screen is the form factor shift that it seems like, I mean, how many companies have we talked about now betting on dual screen? Google, Intel, Microsoft, Samsung. Is that the right bet? Like I, I kind of think like I get it. Like people want a small screen that turns into a big screen. Like, it seems very obvious that this is a thing that people will be happy about. But it seems like everyone's saying this is the next form factor evolution of phones. And so we're going to get there real early. We're going to we're going to start building it now. We're going to be ahead of that curve. We're talking about it. Do you buy that bet? I don't know. Kind of. To me, like, as long as it fits in your pocket, yes. And that's why the Surface Duo is interesting because it's it's thin. It's maybe too wide for a pocket, but, like, it's thinner than the Fold because the Fold has to have that you know, big curve to make sure the screen doesn't break. As long as it fits in a pocket, I'm excited to try things that like are, you know, a small thing that unfolds into a big thing. But once it's no longer pocketable, then I think you're moving into a different class of device. And maybe we're going to move to a future where everybody, uh, you know, has, you know, whatever they were calling them now, instead of fanny packs strapped to them and that that's where our devices go. Like, that would be fine. Fashion changes. But until then, if it doesn't fit in a pocket, then um, I think you're, 
you're not quite there. Like there's there's basic ergonomics of human hands and human like the pants that we tend to wear. Um, maybe we'll all, we shall switch to like dresses and kilts so that it can have really big pockets. I'd be down for that as well. <laughs> I really would. Dresses famously don't have pockets. It's actually a thing that are they famously didn't, but they used to. And then they had like little pockets they yeah. could like hang on the inside, and then they they went away, and it was a whole thing that they shouldn't have gone away, but they did. It, yeah, sorry. No, I'm just saying, if that's well, the thing I, that gets stressed out of pockets, I think, like, 50% of the world's population would be very happy. Yeah, right. It's like folding phones, like, <laughs> fix this problem. Like, yeah, I'll take it. I, I carry a backpack so that I have enough room for a laptop, and I just can't, I wish, but I can't think of what I would be, uh, that I'm, gl- oh, I'm glad that I had this folding dual screen device in my backpack instead of a laptop, or in addition to a laptop. So I can't think of why... Why? I just can't think. I wish, but I can't. Yeah. Am I not? A, am, am I not a forward-thinking, uh, mobile, technologically adept professional? So my my read on it is is much dumber, which is just broadly, people are interested in things that look different. Yeah. Right. It's the simplest thing that you can understand. Mm-hmm. This looks like one thing. That looks like another thing. And so, it's really hard for. Google to be like, our black rectangle is qualitatively better than this black rectangle because, you know, our our swipes were different, but now they're the same, right? Like, that's a very difficult argument to make, right? And we, we've, how many years have we gone through it? We just had a, a, a round of phone reviews where, you, you know, I can't stop dunking on the New York Times because they refuse to review the iPhone against Android, right? Like, and they're like, turn on the flash and just use your old iPhone. That's the best phone for you. Like, that's because people are just like, yep, it's, this is the thing I like. I can just buy the next one. You show people a new form factor. This is what Apple used to do with the iPod all the time, right? One year it's skinny, the next year it's fat. One year it, it has the screen is long, the next year the screen is short. Like, are you talking about the iPad, the the flailing iPad iPod Nano years? Yeah, just like this year the shuffle has no buttons. Now buttons. Like every year they're just like constantly changing the physical design of the thing. It operated in exactly the same way. But they managed to drive press cycle after press cycle with colors and shapes, right? Because people just saw a different thing. I think you show people this phone unfolds into a bigger phone. It is a natural moment to reconsider, well, I want that. And so like that, it's. I think it's a dumb, it's like it's not like the most sophisticated read on it. But I do think in terms of moments where people are like, do I want the one that looks like the thing I've had and am familiar with or do I want the one that looks new and different? It is, it is at least obviously that moment. Now, whether you know, two years from now, Apple puts out a folding iPhone and then it, we're just back in the same place, like maybe. But if they can get there first and it's a complete product, I think it, it's at least that moment of you see the ads, you see it unfold, and you're like, my phone doesn't do that and I want a phone that does. And like, sometimes maybe that's all it takes to shift the market. But then you find out that it runs Android and your bubbles are green. It's all over for you. One cool outcome I would like is if that the, the, the Duo, the little folding phone, turns out to be just the world's greatest Outlook machine. And then, then I'd be vindicated because, like, yeah, I don't use Outlook, so I'm fine. I don't need it. But the Outlook people could be just so happy that they have the world's greatest Outlook machine. You know, the thing is, like, we know. It's our audience. We know there's people who live entirely within the Microsoft operating system. And well, operate. hit me up. Hit me up. Yeah. Holiday 2020. Let me know. <laughs> You've discovered your true, your true device. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm, I'm excited to see new stuff. Like, yeah. there's been a lull where it's just very clear, at least with foldables, it's not VR. It's not esoteric. It's, there's a next generation yeah. of hardware coming. 
and it's it's going to be cool. It's so exciting that it's kind of disappointing because at the same time, Microsoft put out probably the two best laptops on the planet. Oh, yeah. And they're totally overshadowed by some crazy, really interesting hardware. But these laptops look great. I mean, the the in, them being even interested in upgradability and maintainability, it's obviously interesting for enterprises, but it's, it's, it's a cool concept <laughs> in general. Uh, they just look great. Uh, their specs uh, seem po- on point. Yep. The 15-inch looks wonderful. I think that's a really good blend of specs. I wish it was Zen 2, but whatever. I feel like, the, you know, if, if these actually ship, run well, aren't like super buggy or something weird happens, these seem like the best, best laptops on the market. Well, and on top yeah. of all that, like, you know, there's the Surface Pro X. There's this whole idea of Microsoft has figured out that, oh, well, we can just take the the part that the company makes and then make them customize it for us. And then it's like a mm-hmm. custom processor for a Surface. They did it with both AMD and Qualcomm. Uh, that's wild and potentially very interesting and potentially a huge competitive advantage for Microsoft compared to the rest of the PC industry. Which kind of changes the definition of Surface because seem, seemingly back in the day, the Surface, like here's a, an example of how cool a Windows device could be. Uh, and this, right. this is like, here is a window device that only Microsoft could make. I've been talking to, to Panos about this for actually quite a long time. Like that Surface, where you started, where you are. The original Surface mission was in Best Buy, there was no PCs over $500 because mm. nobody would buy them. So there was mm. like Apple at the high end. And then like, you know, we talked about the big cheap ones, like. 15-inch, $500 HP PCs. The 15-inch DVD player. Yeah. Um, And he's like, we're never going to – we'll never survive if we can't – we don't have hardware. So, like, one of the early missions was just prove that, like, these things would sell. But what you've seen – and I think this is where, like, it's great. The Microsoft feels a competitive pressure and they have to deliver. They validated that market. They created that market. And now there's a great XPS 13 there is a great line of Spectre PCs from HP. Like, they're very, very competitive PCs in the world that are at the higher end of the market. So now Microsoft is like one one notch up. And I suspect that they are not going to be very proprietary about their, their custom chips, especially with AMD and whatnot. Like, I suspect that you will see some, like, part numbers change, and then those very similar chips end up in other places. But Microsoft is the one who's like, yep, we're going to architect this for Windows. Like, we'll just do it. We'll just do the work with you up front. So... I gotta I gotta wrap up that story. Like I've been I've been talking to Panos about it for a, a long time now, actually. Um, but it's really interesting. They're the only company I can think of in Dieter. I'm specifically thinking about Palm uh-huh. and BlackBerry. Uh, only company I can think of ever that has managed to compete with its partners while owning the operating system and pull it off. As far as I know, no, no one else has ever done it. Mm, you're probably right. Yeah. If you can think of one, let me know. But as far as I know, Microsoft has pulled off what basically seemed impossible for years, and they've done just a terrific job. Okay, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. i, I got to talk about this net neutrality ruling. I have to. I'm sorry. But we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about it. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. 
Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. We're back. Paul, mm, yep. every week, That's right. you do a segment about net neutrality. <laughs> <laughs> you know it. Let me tell you about how much I love the internet. Um, What's no, it called? It's, call, it's called I've Seen the Matrix. I'm Not an Idiot. Okay. And uh, I know we're trying to wrap up the surface stuff to talk about you net can't. neutrality. We're never going to stop. I'll run you through it real quick. Okay. Neo means one. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Spoilers, but that's what the Matrix is about. Uh, Duo, that's two. Mm-hmm. Like the app Duolingo means two lingos, right? <laughs> and then Trio is a phone made by Palm. Exactly. <laughs> that is exactly where I'm going. Surface Trio is the next thing. You heard it here first. That's all it's I've a, got to it's say. It's a Palm phone. That's your segment for the week is Surface <laughs> I saw Trio. The, I, yeah. Perfect. All right. So it is true that we talk about net neutrality on the show all the time. I will try to give a very quick sum up of, of where we've been at and what's happening. So there was a president, his name was Barack Obama. Remember him? Yeah. yeah. He was great. <laughs> Miss him terribly. His FCC categorized the internet under Title II, broadband, both wireless and wired, under Title II of the Telecommunications Act. So they're common carrier, it's net neutrality, got to treat all the traffic the same. No blocking, no locking, no throttling. Everyone's very happy about this. Uh, universally popular across party lines policy. This is a true fact. Does not poll based on everyone just like likes this idea. Except for me. Except for Paul. <laughs> just Paul. The polls are actually very weird. They're like, <laughs> we don't understand this one result. Yeah, it's like Paul and Verizon employees don't like it. Everyone else is cool. But as I did it, everyone cheered. Yay, internet. President Trump gets elected, installs a guy named Ajit Pai, uh, chairman of the FCC. Pai rams through a shift re-regulates uh, broadband wired and wireless under Title I of the Telecommunications Act, calling it information service, which has a very specific legal definition, but it's an information service, and which means carriers can do whatever they want, right? Blocking, locking, throttling. Uh, for example, if you were AT&T, you might wish to buy Time Warner uh, and then stream CNN and HBO, <laughs> the doomed HBO Max, over your pipes uh, free, right? And, but make Fox News viewer paid data fees. That's what's going to happen. CNN will be free on, on, on AT&T and Fox News won't be. That seems problematic to me, but that's where we are. Immediate lawsuit filed, right? You can't do it. You didn't have enough of a record. There wasn't enough of a commentary period. Agencies, federal agencies are not allowed to make arbitrary and capricious decisions. Uh, this makes no sense, blah, blah, blah. We have been waiting every Tuesday and Friday. The entire tech policy world like waits on pins and needles for the D.C. Circuit to drop the ruling in this case. We covered it. It was The trial was very funny. There's a lot that happened here, but the ruling came out on Tuesday. 
It hit. Big news. Zuckerberg audio is like leaking at the same time. So like news sort of went undercovered, undernoticed. BuzzFeed published a huge study today. <clears throat> BuzzFeed published a huge story today basically verifying that all like millions of public comments at the FCC yeah. during the rulemaking change from Title II to Title I were fraudulent. Uh, basically like shady lobbyist firms impersonated people, including lots and lots of dead people oh, God. to leave comments supporting the rollback and net neutrality. So like just a, a shady process rushed. Yeah. Ajit Pai wins by the skin of his teeth at the court. Okay. And I, I, I just want to, so this, I think this decision is, uh, it's, it's just the, one of the most upside down legal decisions I've ever read. Not because the legal reasoning is necessarily bad, although some of it is very confusing. Literally the writing at one point, it quotes Macbeth. Like, that's where the court's at with Macbeth? net neutrality. Yep. Well, the, one of the concurrences starts with a quote from Macbeth. I'll just read it to you. Also, are you going to define the word solecism to us? Because that was also in, in there, and I had to look it up. And these this is, uh, this is Judge Stephen Williams, wrote an opinion that concurs in part, dissents in part. It literally begins like this. This is a senior judge at the Federal Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, wrote an opinion. It begins this way. About net neutrality. And be these juggling fiends no more believed that palter with us in a double sense that keep the word of promise to our ear and break it to our hope. So says Macbeth, finding that the witch's assurances were sheer artifice and that his life is collapsing around him. The enactors of the 2018 order, the net neutrality order, though surely no Macbeths, might nonetheless feel a certain kinship being told that they acted lawfully in rejecting the heavy hand of Title II for the internet, but that each of the 50 states is free to impose just that. How drunk are these people? Wait, like, what wait, is happening Which side here? is that arguing for? That, what? It's both. Okay. So here's the ruling side. I just want, like, I, I cannot stress enough how out of control legalistic net neutrality has become. Yeah. When the, the core of it, the fundamental root of it is... Should your internet provider be able to block, throttle, and shape your traffic, right? That's it. That's the question. And we're at judges doing Macbeth. And I think I, I think I finally have a sense of why. It's because they're bored. They're <laughs> bored. No, it's because literally it's gone back and forth so many times that it has now entered this world of like, how good is your technical legal argument? Right? Not how much sense does this policy make, but how good is the how good is your lawyering? How much how how well have you said the magic words to judges about deference to agencies in Congress instead of does this policy make sense? It's like law sport. Yeah, it's 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 just become a very, very, very technical, very legalistic. So it's fun for me to read because it's like sport, but it's totally divorced from the reality of the question, which again, widely popular. So here's what the court said. And I think this is actually really interesting because I think it, it points to something that it points to a very clear shape of how the the future of net neutrality might unfold. The court said, look, we give agencies deference, right? You're, you're, the FT, you're the FCC, you're the EPA, whatever. You get deference from the court for your internal decisions. We don't try to step into your world. We're not, we're not trying to do your job. There is a, there's a 2005 court case. It's called the Brand X decision, which is incredible. <laughs> but there was an internet provider called Brand X that got sued, blah, blah. The Brand X decision, the Supreme Court said broadband was an information service. Six to three. 2005. This is a long time ago. The most notable dissent in that decision, Antonin Scalia, who, and this is true, in a lengthy metaphor about pizzerias, 
said, you are all stupid, which is the thing that Scalia used to say in his opinions. You are all stupid. The internet's obviously a telecommunication service. I think that decision is wrongly decided, but it's Supreme Court precedent. So now the court is looking at, we have to be deferential to the agencies, and we have, we're bound by Supreme Court precedent. So the agency, the FCC has said, this is Title I, that's their decision to make. Under the Brand X precedent, we also find that it's an information service. The, the court's already said this. The specific reason it's an information service and not a telecommunication service, a common carrier telecommunication service, telecommunication services just provide interconnection, right? So you operate a telecommunication service, it's a big network, it's, you're just connecting different devices. Like the phone line is the example of this thing, right? The common carrier phone line, you can plug in whatever you want, you can call whoever you want, the AT&T can't stop you from doing it. Information services are integrated. So think about uh, AOL in like the early 2000s, right? You you get a phone number from AOL, you call AOL's server, um, you, know, you call AOL's modem, it pings their server, you use AOL's service. So information services are allowed to use software and interconnects are only allowed to use wires, is, is what you're saying. Uh, basically. Okay. Um, yeah, that's, that's actually a good way to put it. <laughs> is it? It's really not. I said it to troll you. <laughs> No, because that is what the court said, my friend, because they decided that under the Brand X precedent from 2005, uh -huh. merely providing DNS servers uh -huh. and caching on your network uh -huh. is enough to move you out of telecommunications to information. DNS and caching. DN specifically DNS and caching. So what you're saying is there's no hardware without software. <laughs> I'm saying, and even one of the, the concurrences says, this is a ridiculous position to take. DNS and caching are not that important. Anybody can go use a different DNS server than what their provider wants. Mm -hmm. And encrypted traffic does not flow through provider caching systems, most notably HTTPS, right? Which is a lot of the internet right now. Yeah. So you're not using the caching service if you're mostly using commercial websites. If you go to The Verge, HTTPS, doesn't hit your provider cache, right? And you can just like use a different DNS. So these two services that your provider is giving you are somewhat optional yeah. or maybe not even relevant. Yeah. So like how on earth are we saying that this makes them an information service? Not, but sadly we're stuck because of Brand X. Yep. That's the DNS and caching. That is why net neutrality is, is – that's why the decision was, was approved. The person agreeing that that's a silly thing said, yep, this is stupid, but I have to say that this is the law because Brand X made me because of the precedent? Yes. When I say that this – the whole opinion is wild, that's Judge Pat Patricia Millett uh, wrote a concurrence. She says the court's opinion is valid because of Brand X. She said Brand X is designed to protect walled gardens. AOL is a walled garden. We talk about walled gardens all the time. All right, here's a court opinion about net neutrality. Let me just read it to you. The commission's decision to cling to DNS and caching as the acid test for its regulatory classification cannot bear very much reality. By the way, the words cannot bear very much reality are in quotes and footnoted to T.S. Eliot. Just putting that out there. Today, <laughs> the typical broadband offering bears little resemblance to the Brand X version. The walled garden has been raised and its fields sown with salt. Oh, my God. <laughs> this is where we are with net neutrality. What is, can, can you please, I'm sorry, but please break that down for me. What is the walled garden? Who is the salt? Yeah, so the walled garden is AOL or CompuServe or Prodigy or, or whatever, right? Okay. Or a, an early 2000s broadband provider where you sign up and you like go to their weird custom homepage and they provide you your email address and all those things. So there is a walled garden that's an information service that further you can go past it to the internet. Right. Right. 
So you, you, you go on AOL.com and then you've got an AOL connection, but you've got the AOL service and the internet's like out there in the background. Now, in this analogy, I've pillaged the walled garden, torn it all down, and I'm sewing it with salt so you can't grow back. Who am I? <laughs> yeah, am yeah I, you're, you're yeah. like the force of the market. Okay. You're like the Chrome browser, right? Like you're, you're, nobody uses their provider services that way anymore, right? Okay. So you buy a pipe and like what you want to is you want to get to Gmail, hmm. right? You're not, you're not like living in the AOL universe. Or like an at charter.net email address or something. Yeah, like those are just optional services. So the, like the walled garden of AOL doesn't exist anymore is what she's saying. Right. Not only, says Judge Millet, not only does the walled garden lay in ruin, <laughs> but the roles of DNS and caching themselves have changed so dramatically since Brandex was decided. And they have done so in ways that strongly favor classifying broadband as a telecommunication service as Justice Scalia had originally advocated. So what you're looking at is a concurrence. You're seeing this is the right decision, but we've made it because of precedent. We've not made it because it's the right decision. So the Supreme Court should look at this. As basically, she's saying, appeal this. Go up there. Figure it out. Is appeal a possibility? I think it's very interesting for net neutrality advocates to go up against Justice Roberts and Justice Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and say, do you disagree with Antonin Scalia, lion of the conservative court? That's a, that's a very interesting position. I don't know that they're going to do it. I think they, that's a risky bet. But this is the real opening. This is the thing that I think is really interesting. The court struck down the FCC's rule that said states couldn't write their own net neutrality laws. And this is, like a very, this is a logic puzzle. So just like go with me on this. So federal rules preempt state rules when an agency makes a rule. Mm -hmm. But the FCC got rid of mm -hmm. all of its rules and then mm. put in a rule that said the state can't make rules. Mm -hmm. So you're saying no rules, just right net neutrality. <laughs> yeah. So the court basically said, look, you can't claim to preempt the state rules with your rules when you have no rules. So we're, your dumb rule that the states can't do is gone. It's like federalism. This is what I mean about extremely technical lawyering. This is what the framers would have wanted, I think. <laughs> sure. But like, if you go up to just a regular person, you're like, should AT&T be able to charge you for Fox News and not CNN? They'd yes. be like- I believe in conflict preempt. Like, what the hell are you doing? But that's where we are. So now states, uh, California most famously has very stringent net neutrality rules, more stringent than the ones that were passed by the FCC. New York has a set of net neutrality rules. Other states are passing them. The states are now going to impose net neutrality rules. And that is like the nightmare for ISPs, especially mobile ISPs. Because if you cross a state line with your phone, and depending on where you are, your internet traffic has to look different or be built differently. You're like, it's a nightmare scenario. So like, I don't know what's going to happen next, but that the point of this is this decision is bonkers. I'm going to like try to put it on the website tomorrow and just point out some of the, the walled garden has been raised. Where, where are we? What's happening? It is deep. The argument, the legal argument now is like in lawyer town. It's not in policy town. It's not in what's best for consumers town. And the states now have an enormous amount of power to pass their own laws that might just end up being the laws of the nation because you might as well just pick the strictest one and go, which is very much what California does in all kinds of other ways. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a lot. That was my net neutrality rant. I'm done now. I don't have anything left in the tank. States I don't rights. have any more Macbeth quotes for you. <laughs> so Dieter mentioned the word solicism earlier. That comes from a quote. This is a real vignette. So at one point, the court, in its majority opinion, which is unsigned, by the way. None of the judges would put their name on the opinion, but this is the opinion. When I say it's, like, overly legalistic and, and like, out of touch with reality, they're deciding whether uh, mobile broadband 
is a private wireless service, which is an information service, or a commercial wireless service, or a telecommunication service. And they've and the, we've literally lawyered our place, our way into a place where uh, whether or not the devices can make phone calls to landline phones might be determinate, right? So, I mean, that's where we again totally disconnected from reality. And the argument is, well, you know, your your tablet can get like a, a VoIP service on it that makes phone calls. So that would obviously make it a commercial wireless service. So the judge. The anonymous judge writing this decision uh, concocts a scenario, a play between two people. If so, this is the decision. If someone tells a friend, I just got a great new tablet with mobile broadband, which is something everybody says all the time, it would hardly be a solecism for the friend to reply, great, does your service let me reach you from my landline? Another thing people say all of the time. A solecism, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Dieter, it's... uh, it's like a false statement. That's what it means. Like a wrong. It would. It would be. It's like a wrong thing to say. It's like a misstatement. Yeah. A solecism. That's the word we're using. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Of course, the new tablet owner might reply, "Not now, but it could if I set up a Google Voice number." But that only shows the linguistic ambiguity. I've read that fifty times. Yeah. I still kind of don't know what it says. It's saying that if someone says, I got a great new tablet with mobile broadband, you would actually be like a reasonable person to say, can I call you with my landline? Yeah. Maybe. (laughs) Or maybe it means the opposite. Who can tell? All I'm saying is this decision to me, what it shows is the net neutrality debate has moved into the world of lawyers and far away from the world of consumers. And the answer is we need some laws because that makes way more sense. And it seems like the states have a huge opening to write some laws and they're already doing it. All right iOS 13 is really buggy. I just want you all to know that. <laughs> they released like 15 <laughs> updates since it came out. All we have time to say. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's it. That was a Vergecast. We did three shows this week. It's been a it's been a it's been a crazy week of Vergecast stuff. Let me know if that's too many. I'm at Reckless. You can you can tweet at me. That'd be great. You can tweet at Dieter. He's at Backline. Paul's at Future Paul. Dieter's got a newsletter. That's right. What it's is it? Theverge.com slash newsletter. Yeah. It's, cur- it's currently called Command Line. We put links in there. We sometimes put little essays and thoughts. There's a triangle in the subject line if there's a big, long long story in it. You should you should subscribe. Yeah. Casey's got the interface. Two newsletters of the Verge now. Think about it. Well, Newsletter, flagship, Armada. Which one do you use the flagship? Uh, mine, mine, mine's bigger <laughs> because I <laughs> took over the last one. But. <laughs> a clever move. Uh, <laughs> we are also hiring for someone to help us with this show and other shows. So if you're a podcast producer, you're interested in stuff, hit us up, theverge.com slash podcast job. We're also doing a survey. We want your feedback. We love your feedback. Go to theverge.com slash survey. You can listen to other podcasts from the Vox Media Podcast Network. You can check out Recode Decode with Kara Swisher. You can check out Pivot with Kara and Scott Calloway. That show's great. You can check out Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's it. That was the Vergecast. The walled garden has been raised, and the fields have been sown with salt. Rock and roll. Solacism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Paul. <laughs>
It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.